Hi, and welcome to Brett. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he sets out five vocational gifts for the building up of the church in the kingdom of God. Evangelist, pastor, prophet, teacher, and apostle. It's our conviction that every single one of us is called into one or more of these. They're not personalities, but our personality undoubtedly plays a part. What they are is the call of God on your life. Now Jesus is, of course, the perfect combination of all five. And so it makes sense that having worked out our particular call, we look to and learn from Jesus in order to grow into maturity in our particular one. So for the next five weeks, we'll be looking at how Jesus is an example to us of the perfect evangelist, apostle, teacher, pastor, and prophet. Amen, if you want to take a seat. Uh, Hi, if we haven't met, my name is Hannah, and I'm married to Ed, who has vanished, but that's fine. Um, This morning is one of those times where between what uh, Ben felt like the Spirit was doing in the worship and what Ed prayed, I sort of have a sense that most of my talk has already been covered. Um, And I'm not sure if that's because I could actually accuse them of some sort of conspiracy to pre-mansplain me. Maybe, I don't know. Um, Or, uh, and I didn't really tell anyone what I was speaking about, it's probably more likely to have just been what God's doing in the room. So let's pay attention to that. Um, We are in this series of um, the, what are known as the five-fold uh, giftings, the ways that from the Ephesians 4 that we use what we have to serve the church in these five areas. Um, if you're not familiar with the different modes in which we're given to understand church in the New Testament, one of them is this picture that Paul builds of us being like a body, us all having our part to play, and that's in a separate letter, but in this letter, um, the focus is very much in us having these different roles and uh, working out how to do that in unity. We're all on that uh, journey to maturity and how to bring unity together. And Ed and I see this as one of our primary um, roles, one of our most important jobs as the leaders of this church is to best help you identify and to put your gifts to work. Um, Because that's really what we believe church is. I know it's contrary to what we may have experienced in church before, but we really don't see this thing primarily as being about the Sunday gathering where someone stands up here and teaches brilliantly or worships beautifully. Um, We really see this actually much more as being a thing of us all being in this together, us all being a part of this together, this not working like it should do if we're not all um, bringing our part to it. The, um, The thing with the five things in Ephesians that we're covering is it's not really like sort of personality types. It's not another kind of Myers-Briggs or Enneagram um, kind of thing. It's much more about um, the type of service that comes naturally. So you could have the same type of service that comes naturally as somebody who is a completely other type of person to you and is called in different ways to that thing. but just to sort of clarify the difference between these kind of modes of thinking. Um, for instance, if we were to send all our very pastorally gifted people out to be evangelists, or we made all of our prophets in charge of the pastoral care, that would not go well. Uh, you can see how that wouldn't work. If you are here just checking us out, um, we really do understand that it can take a while to figure out if a church is for you. Um, if it's kind of going to be a good fit. 
Um, we kind of always say this, that there's no pressure. Please don't hear this as you must immediately identify these things and get involved with it right now. Feel free to just come here and check this out, uh, check out what we do here for as long as you'd like to. But if you do decide this is our church, it is our strong recommendation that you give yourself to it, that you get involved. Um, it's for your benefit and for the benefit of the church. Do not worry about it too much if um, this way of thinking about being part of a church doesn't feel like um, something that you've considered before or indeed if none of these roles kind of feel like you. It's very, very normal for some of us to evolve quite slowly and there are different reasons for that in terms of how long it can take into our maturity to actually work out who we are. Uh, Ed and I spent our, a good part of our lives together at a church that was very, very, very strongly focused on um, the outward thing. Several of the main leaders were very evangelistic, and that was a beautiful thing, and it definitely was a powerful thing, and it was a, for anyone of other strengths to, to witness the sort of, the power of what it is when people come to faith was great, but it, it sometimes had a, an effect of, of making it seem like that gifting was maybe more more important, more focused on than other giftings. And actually, for me, I definitely thought um, that I was sort of trying to pursue a gifting in evangelism, which I do not have. So give yourself a break if you are, particularly if you're in your 20s and early 30s, we, we often just don't know. God takes some time to put these things together in us. Don't worry if you don't know yet. However, you will be as unsurprised as I was to discover that you can fill out a 45-question survey and discover your kingdom strengths at fivefoldministry.com. Um, I can't vouch for its accuracy other than to say it got mine right. So, um, you know, give it a go. It may help. It may not. So, so far in this series, Ed has taught on the evangelist and the apostle, and last week, Raoul taught us about the pastor or the shepherd, it's sometimes called to be less confusing with the sort of office of the pastor, as you, as you say, in your Americanness. Um, and today we're on teacher. If you have teaching strength, it is possible or perhaps even likely that your teaching strengths haven't necessarily been harnessed in church before, because I think there are just very limited outlets for them in our Western mode of church, aside from stepping up and preaching from a pulpit or from just the carpet, um, or if, unless you teach in an actual classroom. But the gifting of teaching, the strength of the teachers is much broader than those things. Teachers are excited um, by thinking about how they can help people reimagine what is beautiful and relevant about following Jesus. I think in this moment of time, um, it's quite likely that it's going to include a sense of rebuilding, a joy in the rebuilding for people of um, what they maybe have been objecting to in American cultural Christianity. But it can also just be very simply about a joy of speaking truth into people's messy lives and helping them move forward in their faith. Teachers are often curious for deeper understanding of the Bible, how it applies to us, and they really don't like it when things don't make sense. They often search and research um, the sort of these, these things that sort of seem to be contradictory or seem just to not make sense with what we understand of the gospel. Uh, they love sharing complex ideas with other people in ways that they make sense. If teachers aren't at work in church, 
people sometimes just don't understand why they should change. They can stay stuck and incurious about their faith and how it can impact their life. Teachers might feel frustrated if other people around them don't seem to have the same hunger to learn as they do. They definitely get frustrated with false teaching and just plain bad teaching. Um, if preaching on a Sunday, it could be something, if you're a teacher, that you feel very drawn to, this sort of need to share what you understand of Scripture. Um, but this gift can also, and needs to also, operate in smaller groups and one-on-ones. It certainly doesn't look like informing people of the correct information. Teaching is also very much storytelling, though, of course, not all storytelling is teaching. Jesus very often told stories as answers to questions that he was asked. He saw the people that were asking their questions, and he saw underneath their questions to their fears and their pain and their hunger, and he moved them with his insight very often via story. Jesus, in fact, very rarely answered a question directly. When questioned by other teachers of the law, he'd often answered them with another question in reply. And when asked about the validity of of a perspective, he quite often just said, come and see. Uh, Rabbi is what he was known as, um, which means, as it's translated from the Greek, sorry, excuse me, teacher. Um, And so we're going to look at him, Jesus the teacher. It's what he spent, obviously, an enormous amount of his time doing. And he was very clear that it was one of the primary roles of his disciples when he left them to go and teach the world what they had learned. And perhaps his most famous teaching is what we're going to look at this morning from Matthew 5 to 7. Sorry, put that down. So it's quite long. I'm not going to do three chapters, you'll be pleased to hear. Uh, But it's called the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sure you've heard of it. And it is the opening of chapter 5 of Matthew. So it's actually the first full address that Jesus has in the whole of the New Testament, his first recorded teaching. And up until this point in Matthew, his ministry has just been getting going as he traveled through Galilee, um, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Matthew says that at this point, Jesus saw that a crowd had gathered and he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach them. And it always strikes me in this moment, in this sort of, you know, just picturing Jesus' humanity at the start of everything, in this moment, this first instance that we have of this big crowd forming around him, that he sits down, that he doesn't sort of get big and puffed up. He sits down on a mountainside. And his disciples came to him and he starts teaching. In case, like me, you have a skeptical mind that would like to understand the acoustics of this situation. Um, I've actually been to the site uh, by the Sea of Galilee where they believe this happened. And it's got actually an amphitheater effect. Jesus probably wouldn't have been on the top like sometimes we're taught. He would have very likely been about sort of halfway up the very steep bit by the lake. Uh, where it, and so that sound bounced off the lake and would carry it upwards. It is actually to go and shout on that hillside. It's remarkable how far you can be heard. So there you go. And he preaches this sermon. In its entirety, uh, this sermon was shocking. 
countercultural, revolutionary, and in many ways as counterintuitive to them on that day as it is to us today. It stood in stark contrast to the teaching of any other rabbi or philosopher or messianic figure, of which there were plenty at the time. This is what we sort of sometimes refer to as Jesus' kingdom manifesto, his most succinct, fullest teaching on what the kingdom of God is and how we are to live in it. Uh, our official reading, which Trace is going to come and read to us in a second, is from right at the end. But what I want to do before we have that reading is just to skim through the sermon so that we know what it does contain. So it starts, as I'm sure you know, with the Beatitudes. Beatitudes means a state of great joy about the supreme blessing of God. I think we're just going to flick through these on the screen. Blessed are the, those who mourn. Uh, blessed are the meek. What was the first one? I missed it. Poor in spirit. Thank you. Um, blessed are the hunger, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled with life. I'm sure we're very familiar with, with these. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Um, just in case it's tempting, and I think sometimes we have made the mistake of reading these a little bit like God wants us to be weak and poor and downtrodden and hungry and mourning and persecuted, and he's cool with it when we go through rough stuff because actually it's good to let people walk over us um, so that we learn our place in the world. Um, it's not, not how to read any of this. Blessed are the poor in spirit simply means blessed are those who know their dire need for God. Blessed are those who have turned away from their own efforts. Blessed are those who show mercy and forgive and who have strength, but don't use their strength to dominate. That is a piece that runs through the entire ethic of the kingdom. Blessed are those who have the power, but use their power to benefit others. Blessed are the peacemakers. The noun peacemaker is compiled in the Greek words for peace and do or work. So it's not this passive thing that we might think of as. It's very, very active. Blessed are the peace bringers, the peace doers. Blessed are the reconcilers, the ones who do the brave work of not waging war against a hostile enemy like our flesh leads us to do, but those who stand in the gap, who turn the other cheek, and who accept the inevitability of conflict. And as it goes on through the rest of the sermon, there is this peace that runs all the way through it. This piece that I think we can understand to mean conflict is inevitable. Our state, even in church together, is that we will not always get along, but we are to solve this together by not judging, by loving our enemies. This is a huge theme throughout this sermon as well. And then after the blessings, he moves on to the mission, which I'm sure you know is that anyone who wants to follow me to be the salt and light in the world, that um, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And then he moves on to some of the very popular legal debates of the time, the things that the different teachers of the law would have been teaching about in different sects of Judaism and coming to different conclusions about what the law now meant. Um, so he goes through them, these, these themes, these current discourses <clears throat> of correct teaching. Murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, knocking all of the current conclusions about those things out of the water, water, saying things like murder. In my kingdom, if you even feel anger 
that's just as far away from perfection as murder is. Adultery, you're breaking the law if you even lust. Anything short of perfection is no longer going to work. Justice, when a transgression has occurred, works completely different in my kingdom. My ways are not fair. If someone hits you on the cheek, offer him your other. If someone wants to sue you for your shirt, give him your coat as well. If he comes to you to borrow money, give him what he needs. He's not adding things to the law. He's saying the old justice system just isn't it anymore. I'm coming to administer justice for all of it now. And the only way it will work the only way we can subvert the ways of the world and our old, broken, fleshly hierarchy of power and might and wealth is if you live this out like me. Give yourself away. Give your power to serve. Ultimately, sacrifice yourself for others. This is what the love that he spoke of was always about. And it adds up, of course, to an utterly impossible goal. The Beatitudes are impossible, like all of the rest of this is impossible. As Martin Luther pointed out a very long time ago, none of this is possible without grace. The whole thing requires it. This is all about remembering that we cannot do this on our own, that we do it in his strength. And then next, I think we've got to chapter six now, is a whole series of instructions about ending religious practices. Don't pray self-righteously, don't... Um, do it publicly and then he teaches us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer which in fact we actually do know how to pray he's given us a very clear instruction don't be show-offy with your giving or your fasting your faith is not something you perform in public anymore this is between you and God and in private and in your heart and then this beautiful section that um, Ben was referencing this morning that we're to not worry we're to be anxious for nothing that our Heavenly Father is good and he knows what we need. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given uh, to you as well. The whole thing, as I said, is a revolutionary manifesto in terms of their understanding in that day and ours today unflinching in its unapologetic offence and subversion of all that was established and still is established today. And finally, he ends with this parable that Trace is going to come and read to us. There she is. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash.
When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teacher of the law. Thanks. Uh, so it's not, it's a parable we know. It's a song we've all sung. Surely we've all sung the song. Have we all sung the song? Yes? I won't do it now. Um, it's not just that. It is actually a bit scary when you think about it, what we indoctrinate children with sometimes, isn't it? Houses washing away and being flowed away with enormous rivers. Um, it's actually a piercing inflammatory condemnation of the religious establishment and a call for the listeners to choose wisely when they weigh up the announcement he is making. And when it says at the end there that the crowd were amazed, the translation of that doesn't necessarily believe, uh, mean that they believed anything he was saying, just they were shocked because he was saying this is in my authority, which of course they knew nobody could do apart from God. Um, so it turns out that solid rock lies everywhere underneath the surface sand or soil in the Holy Land. It's just a case of digging until you hit it, and it can be one inch or it can be 10 feet, but across the entire region, solid rock lies underneath everywhere. And in the summer, which was the only time you'd be building in Jesus' day, because you wouldn't even think of doing it when it might rain, uh, the sun turns the soil that sits above the rock um, to a hard bronze-like um, substance because it's made with such a high clay concentration. And when the sun dries it out, it makes it look very, very hard. Um, so there's just, a, just an extra depth of meaning to it that we might not necessarily understand with our little kid's song. It's quite a clear statement that Jesus is making. Do not be fooled by the teaching of other rabbis. Nothing else is going to provide the foundational strength that you are looking for. I think that there may be a great many things if we were to stretch this parable to our current understanding that seem like very solid rock to us today, that seem actually a little bit preferable than solid rock or digging to solid rock um, because solid rock in Jesus' metaphor can include a whole bunch of stuff that we really don't want to build our houses on. Give yourself away, use your power to serve, ultimately sacrifice yourself for others. Meek, I don't know, I want to give up my strength for lifting up other people. Kind of like my coat, you can have my shirt if you must. I don't know how much of it we actually truly want when we examine this manifesto in all of its detail. And obviously in 21st century America, our cultural outlook is very different to Jesus' audience on the Mount. Uh, and the things that we reject about his kingdom are not the same as the things that they did. Um, for them it was much more about, as we often talk about them, him not sounding like the mighty messiah, messiah that they were expecting. And these uh, legal explanations just being so offensive to their sensibilities. Um, it just sounding a bit unlikely. I think there's probably quite a sense of, you know, stick to your miracles, we like those, but ultimately we prefer what these other guys are teaching. Um, I, keep, <laughs> I keep saying I'm not going to use the lives of my children and the things that they say as a, uh, just fodder for sermons. Um, but let's just say, like, a hypothetical middle school got in the car with me this week and said to me, um, guess what? 
Beyonce is being cancelled because she performed in Dubai. And I just thought, it's, it's quite a weird time we're living in, isn't it? Not that I suppose in any time taking political commentary from a middle schooler or something that you know, anyone would have thought was ideal. Um, and for the record, what followed that uh, was a very interesting conversation about human rights in the Emirates, the definitions of allyship, cancel culture, and of course, Queen Bee. <laughs> Obviously. But it is a strange time, and I don't think we've been quite here before. I was recently recommended a book called The Righteous Mind by a moral psychologist called Jonathan Haidt. Has anyone read this? Highly recommend it, just one person that I saw. Very interesting book. It's over a decade old, but I think it has only become more poignant about division in religion and politics as time has gone on. It's about um, our own moral values and how we pick the sides that we do. So his basic premise early in his career was that the prevailing psychological thought back then, which I guess was in the 90s, um, was that our moral positions evolved as a process of rational thought. As we matured, we reasoned our way to our moral positions. But he didn't think that quite made sense. Um, and obviously, uh, what we believe is right and wrong, this was established by then, uh, differs from culture to culture, for example, if I were to ask most people in the whole of East LA the moral question, if a husband tells his wife that she's not permitted to go to, let's say, um, a restaurant or a cafe or a bar by herself, and she does that, is the husband permitted to hit his wife? I think the vast majority of us, if not, let's have a chat about it, yeah, but I think the vast majority of us would say no. The vast majority of Americans, the vast majority of Western thinkers would say, absolutely not, that is not okay, violence is not okay. Violence is not okay. Using your power to hurt other people is not what the gospel says. Uh, but this is not necessarily what the rest of the world would say about those things today or throughout the rest of history. Our Western conception of a person as a boundaried, unique center of awareness in, position, in possession, rather, of an individualized rights is, however unthinkable this may seem to us, a peculiar idea to many of the world's cultures. And this is true and would, would have been true throughout the history of humanity. The trail that we have gone down post-enlightenment, and especially throughout the 20th century, uh, amidst fascism and communism and the violence that those things caused, um, those things being extreme versions of a contrast to individualism, which we're going to call uh, socio-centricism or collective thinking. You might have called it more collective thinking. Uh, we went quite far down a road of saying those things are bad and our way is much better. But many, many, many places in the world still today do not think and feel the same way as us. And Haidt, in his research, was interested in finding out why because he didn't believe that this was just a case of uh, reason and, and rational thought being advanced in one place and not in another. So he, of course, observed that it wasn't just different cultures that held mo different moral values, but they, of course, also differ in America, from neighborhood to neighborhood, house to house, and sometimes person to person, in keeping with the sense of personal rights to determine these things for ourselves. 
And his premise was, this stuff cannot be rational. Our emotions are involved in this process too. So he set up these thousands of interviews in various places across socioeconomic barriers, cultural barriers, um, and he asked people to give a verdict on the right and wrong of various moral situations. For example, if a family dog is killed in an accident and the family is hungry and no one else witnesses this, is it okay for the family to eat the dog? Other scenarios like that involving stronger taboos, things that are sort of more widely held to be depraved or disgusting. But he tweaked the scenarios always so that no living thing was harmed and no one else knows about it. All these moral and ethical quandaries and asked participants not to just give their answer of yes or no, but to explain why they answered the way that they did. <clears throat> and his research shows pretty compellingly that our versions of right and wrong are intuited. We feel them. We sense them and we judge them based on the experience and the information we gather throughout our lives. We have a gut reaction about a moral value and then post hoc, after we have that, that gut reaction, we reason it. We make sense of our feelings by pulling in facts that suit us when we find the evidence that supports the position that we already hold. What we're also wired to do as humans is to be tribal as a, ver as a matter of our very basic social cognition. To be part of social groups, to share emotional bonds, to feel affinity with people who believe the same things as us. Our feelings take over from rational thoughts about these groups too. We have an emotional, almost authoritarian as it's examined, reaction when we feel that our group is threatened Studies consistently show that we will favor the perception of the motives of our groups, will attribute positive feelings to our group, will prefer allocation of, sorry, allocation of resources to our group. We favor our own, and we attribute the worst of the extremes, the worst of the far extremes of the other group to the whole group. It's all intuitively without any thought about it. don't often do a uh, moralistic pastor routine from up here, but I'm just going to have a little go at social media for a minute. I, of course, know that it has many, many, many values of connection and communication, but I would like to, dear church, encourage you to check in on your use of social media from time to time. They are designed to addict you, to get you to spend as much of your time on them as they possibly can, they don't mind that they alter your brain chemistry around them. They are businesses, and their bottom line is only to keep you on them as long as they possibly can. They know that our social chambers tend to be full of people who already think like us. They want to make you mad and confirm the beliefs you already have with new information that confirms it because that makes you stay on them longer. They love it that sharing or posting about a cause that you believe in gives you a little dopamine kick, like you actually did something concrete to help a situation. They work, they function around our fallen, evolved human psyches, and they profit from it, and they have every right to do so. I'm not arguing with that. All I am asking is check in with your social media habits and what you receive as truth from where. 
it's not often um, or rather it's it's just not ground that I think we want to be building our houses on all of this us and them our side and their side we're right they're wrong it might look and feel like solid rock but the Sermon on the Mount says something else You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Loving our enemies means recognizing what that means for our fallen, evolved humanity and the way that our minds work today. When we face an enemy, however we perceive that enemy, we feel incensed, or when we feel incensed or emboldened with the feelings of righteousness that we naturally have, as opposed to our enemy, we enter into our brain's survival mode, which means our limbic system, the part of the brain that helps us survive in dire situations, overrides the thinking part of our brain and leaves us as unhelpfully as this may be, dealing with not just what is in front of us, but also with a lot of unconscious personal history around how the limbic system was formed that way as well. It is almost like our fallenness is woven into our very being from the beginning, isn't it? But when we're in this state of what a lot of people called amygdala hijack, which is, I do quite like that, we are more likely to feel certain And we are certainly less able to fathom the personhood and the importance of someone else. We obviously do not all do this with outward aggression. Um, In fact, I would say in church, um, if you know know, that our, our options are in this, right? You know that we either, there's fight, flight, freeze or fawn. I think we see a lot less fight in church because we are so culturalized to believe that fighting is wrong, that aggression is wrong, that conflict is wrong. I think we see a lot more uh, freeze and fawn, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the conflict isn't there. If we have said more than a few sentences to each other in the last uh, few months, Uh, I may well have taught you about this already. I've certainly talked about it. We did a teaching on it to our staff team on the retreat, and it's worked its way into the dating course uh, a number of times. I would say that I believe that learning to deal with conflict is at the very, very top, or certainly near the very, very top of pastoral needs in the church, probably around the world, but certainly as I see it in this country today. Conflict, as Jesus surely knew when he wrote the Beatitudes and the, and the rest of this sermon the way that he did, is inevitable. Paul, as he wrote to the new churches around the world, showed us that the church in its heyday, in Acts, doing all the most amazing things, sharing everything together, seeing all of the power of the kingdom, still instance after instance after instance of conflict. The data today, I've told, I'm I'm boring for anyone who's on the biblical dating course now, but just bear with me for a second. The data today says that couples who do not know that conflict is an inevitable part of their relationships uh, stand far less of a chance of survival, just in terms of the data that they've gathered on what, what couples work and what couples don't work. 
interestingly. No issues of compatibility rate in that at all. But conflict is a very big one. The data says that between couples that do work, 69% of the things that they conflict, core conflict issues, will never, in the whole course of their lives together, be resolved. I heard a stat this week from somebody that apparently pastors spend at least 20% of their time, or should expect to spend at least 20% of their time managing conflict in their church. Sounds great. But it is also the realistic culture, world that we live in. If we expect there not to be conflict and then there is conflict, no wonder we think stuff is going so wrong. If we expect there to be conflict, even when we love each other and we learn how to deal with it and we know we're in an environment where conflict is welcome and safe and okay and you are loved, it changes it completely. Um, there would certainly be some things, if I were doing an entire sermon on conflict right now, which I'm definitely not, but there would certainly be some things I would include, which would be, don't text when you're in conflict with somebody. Wait until you are regulated is usually good advice. Don't do it when you're in this full amygdala hijacked space. But do not send angry texts. Look somebody in the eye. It changes our entire brain chemistry when, we can, when we're with a person and we can see them. But do share. Don't stew on it. If it's important to say it, wait, pray, wait until you're regulated, but definitely say it. Do not just ignore wounds, because when wounds are big and they're ignored, they fester. We must address them, because that is what we do when we love each other. And you know, always with the disclaimer, if something is downright abusive or is a situation where there's a real power imbalance or someone doesn't feel safe, this changes completely. But in the main, unity will not happen because we learn not to upset each other. This side of heaven, it will only work because we have learnt and we have built a culture where we know how to speak to each other. We know how to love our enemies. We know how to pray for those who persecute us, which includes learning to speak to each other and how to return to a matter that's causing us conflict. It includes recognizing this instinct that we have in our brains to separate between us and them over issues of belief and uh, moral value. It means noticing that our own feelings may not be entirely based in truth, they may be based in our history and our um, other experiences of pain. It means, as Jesus was very clear, resisting the allure of moral superiority and judgment. It means having the humility to inquire into your enemy's position. Be humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Interestingly, one of Jonathan Haidt's key takeaways for any organization who is working to uh, reach a sense of truth is that it is vital to have intellectual and ideological diversity within a group. Isn't that fascinating? 
It's the whole point of Paul's teaching to the church in Ephesus about unity in diversity. Not that we're all the same kind of person, not that we all believe the same things, that we are different parts of the body. We have different ideas of rights and wrongs, and this will include different positions of theology. There are plenty of them that are contentious in the New Testament. We are going to disagree. Nothing about this is new in the new reality of partisan hell that we live in today. It's the spiraling into unmeted hate part that's the problem. Let us be the salt and light that we are called to be. Let us celebrate our differences in belief. As a matter of the gospel and the best human mind's understanding of the human mind, we need this difference as we pursue truth. And we can make it work because of the one that we have unity in. One Jesus, one Lord, faith, baptism, Father over all and through all and in all. To end very quickly, I just want to look at um, Luke's um, telling of this same parable, uh, which was in a very similar uh, sermon that he gave outside Jerusalem called the Sermon on the Plain. <clears throat> Covers a lot of the same things and includes some other things. Um, it was given at much later time in Jesus' ministry. In the version in Luke, uh, rather than building, on the, building the houses on the sand and rock, he describes a man who builds a house having dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock, and a foolish man who built on the ground without foundation. The reference to the foundation um, is in fact um, structured to resemble um, directly a prophecy from Isaiah that was written 400, word, uh, 400 years earlier, Isaiah 28, which was a warning at the time to Israel about the coming invasion and exile, but it included this language around the promise of a new cornerstone, a new foundation of justice and righteousness. So the foundation was also the word given to the stone um, in the middle of the holies of holies, which is this place in the, in the temple, the, the place where God's presence is said to reside. Jesus was to change everything. He is to be our foundation in all of these matters of difference, in all of the ways in which we're offended by each other. Jesus, the foundation, came to entirely change the system of worship. He changed the rules of the game. Um, I'd love to invite the band back up. Can't see you. Oh, there. If you extrapolate what I've been saying to your strongly held positions of your political views, your faith views, your issues of theology, this is a highly offensive message. But I'm not going to make any apologies for that. Because this is what it is. You can come here, sing the songs, love all the love stuff, and hang on to your tightly held, passionate theological beliefs in the fact that everybody else should think like you. Or we can come here and we can offer it all to Jesus, the only one who is capable of bringing us together.
the only one who is capable of showing us this way and what it looks like. It is difficult, though. Um, let's sing a song. There's one about a cornerstone that we sang earlier. That felt quite... Is it? Oh, do you have another one? It was the first one. Great. Let's, let's do that.